Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I was in a room full of seniors in a locked dimension unit in my role as a chaplain, um, conducting a worship service, which I did twice a month for this particular group of people. And this was a role I had before I was at the counseling center. I was doing what Mike Gatliff did, um, directing the Greenwich uh, chaplaincy services. And I want you to sort of envision the scene with me. There's a whole group of seniors circled around in their wheelchairs. And in this particular unit, most of the people there have Alzheimer's, dementia, or have some developmental delays. And many of them were sitting kind of crouched down, um, you know, not really responsive, heads, heads down. Um, and that was somewhat challenging at times because I found when it came time for the hymn, oftentimes it meant I was singing a solo. Um, which wasn't quite what I intended, but nonetheless, I knew that God was in that moment and often felt God's presence there. But there's one particular week that we were all together in that space, and what I realized was something was different. There was a sense of glow or presence about the room, and it may have been because it was near Christmas and we were doing Christmas carols, so I was getting a more responsive audience because they knew the carols. Um, but the real moment of power for me came when we went to the Lord's Prayer. And what often happens when you say the Lord's Prayer in those contexts is that people will join in because those words are so built into the hard drive, they're ritual that go deep in us. And we don't lose that no matter what our cognitive deficits are. So as we started with the Lord's Prayer, I put my hands together to signal prayer time. And I started off, Our Father, and I heard their voices and they were coming in at different cadences and tempos and all different sounds coming together almost in this melody. And somehow, miraculously, we all found our way to the amen together. <laughs> but in that sort of moment of amen, I just had a sense of the heavens opening up and imagining God's eye view on our little group circled around praising God. And what it was was God looking down and saying, this is so beautiful. I love and care deeply for each of those people in that room. And I thought by implication, that means God loves me too. I'm one of those people in that special place. I had a sense of the power and the glory of God in that moment. God's holiness filled up that little room. And for a moment, we were all transcending that time and space. Now that's a little different, it's on a little different scale than what was going on with the Israelites in the desert in Exodus that Jeff read for us about earlier. But there's some similarities and I wanna take a look at that passage with you because I think in both instances what we're finding is that God's presence is real. So let's take a look together at verses 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And as I read this, I just want to pause and say, try to imagine what this looks like. If you could imagine a physical scene, try to imagine in your mind's eye with that in mind. So the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Do you have a, a little visual going yet? Part of what makes this challenging is this is some language, it's almost incomprehensible. The word for glory there is the word kavod in Hebrew. And what it means is weight or weightiness, honor, respect, majesty. All of those words are hard to visualize, aren't they? But what we do know is that this presence of God, this cloud that came down was so intense and so powerful, so weighty, that Moses himself couldn't enter the tent of meeting. It was, it was that full, that expansive, that powerful. Um, and here it is, the last chapter, chapter of Exodus. This is kind of the culmination. And what we find in this moment is that Moses has faithfully put together the tabernacle with a tent of meeting in the center, and the Ten Commandments are in this midst. You have this faithfulness to have finally erected this place for God to come and dwell among his people. The presence, the glory, the kavod of God is dwelling among his people in that space. And in that, he has covered and filled it with his presence. This holy place that God says, I'm going to occupy now, is a place of prayer and praise and a place of offerings. God uses that cloud, and we also hear the fire in the later verses. He uses those sort of created uh, items that he's created and fashioned with his own hands to reveal and to manifest his glory. Where glory is revealed, there is power. So you can imagine for those people out in the desert who have sort of stood around this, this amazing tabernacle, all fitted to God's prescription, they had a sense of the power, the awesome power of God. I'm reminded when I think of that, of a quote by Annie Dillard. Some of you know her. And she had this wonderful thing to say about, are we aware of the power of God? Here's what she said. On the whole, I do not find Christians sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. <laughs> Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Wow. Do you think about that when you drive up on Sunday morning, when you come to the Sandwich Church? Do you think, I wonder if today the cloud is going to be pouring out and we're not going to be able to enter in? Do we, want, do we imagine this is the God we're invoking? How amazing is that? I'm sure the ushers didn't sign up to lash each of us into our pews uh, for fear of the wild ride that's about to start. And yet here we are. We didn't bring our Bible and our crash helmet. But nonetheless, that glory, that power, that kavod of God is as real for us as it was for the Israelites in the desert. So God's glory shows up not just to make us stand in awe or be a fearsome presence, but God's glory has a purpose. And we notice that in the verses that follow. God's glory is there to lead us. There's a glory that directs us to where we're meant to go. So if we look at verse 36 through 38, we see more about this. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, 
than they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Notice what this tells us, that after all this time, the whole book of Exodus, what is God trying to do with his people to direct them and get them to follow where he's leading? And we heard a lot of grumbling along the way, didn't we, in the wilderness. They weren't always obedient sheep following the shepherd. But what we find in the end of Exodus is a statement that now they got it. They figured out that when that cloud stayed, they were to stay. And when the cloud and fire moved on, they were to move on with it. They were to wait on God's lead. And you may say, well, what does this ancient text have to do with me today? Well, I think there's some important things we can learn in the cloud and the fire, and particularly how they're used in the book of Exodus. You may recall back In Exodus 3, we have Moses standing before a burning bush, and yet the bush is not being consumed. And it was the statement, here I am, this is me, I'm bringing my presence to you, and I'm using this as a symbol to get your attention. Then we hear later on the fire showing up and the cloud in chapter 13 of Exodus, and that's where the people of Israel are wandering in the desert and the wilderness, and God is saying, I'm giving you this presence so that you know that I am with you. The cloud is so that you can follow me by day, and the fire is there so that there's light by night to guide your path, so that the people of Israel could travel both at day and night. And in Exodus 14, we read that it's in the cloud, the pillar of cloud and fire, that God looks down on the Egyptians and throws them into confusion. So God uses these to act out and to put into place his divine redemption history in the lives of his people. And I love how God makes his presence so obvious. Sometimes we don't get it, and God says, all right, fine, here's a cloud and here's fire. I'm going to get your attention because I love you. Here are the Ten Commandments. I love you. So God is making his love obvious to us, but it doesn't just stop with the story of the people of Israel, we see these concepts again in the life of Jesus. You know in John 1, we hear the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That verb dwelt can also be translated tented or tabernacled. So Jesus came, the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. That's a direct reference to Exodus 40, when God took up residence and came among us in the tent, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness. Now it's coming in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the place that the glory of God is residing. And you may say, well, what does that have to do for me today? How is that important? Well, you and I have even more of the story than what we've talked about thus far. We know that Jesus came, and not only did he come to bring God's glory in flesh, but he came for another very important purpose, and that was he came to leave his Holy Spirit. We remember when he shows up to the disciples after the resurrection, he breathed out his Holy Spirit on them. And again in Acts 2, we're told that there are tongues of fire on the days of Pentecost, and that is marks of the Holy Spirit coming on the believers. Finally, you and I 
are people who are bearing the glory of God. And how do I know that? If we look at 1 Corinthians 6.19, we read this. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This has big implications for us. Glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's, to me, a pretty radical message and one I forget often because I don't know about you with the body, but I think most people of all ages and gender at times struggle with their bodies. I know women do, as I've talked to many in counseling and beyond. I, in fact, I really don't know anyone who has ever said to me, I like my body just the way it is. <laughs> Do you know anybody? I don't. We might want the body 20 years younger, or the body at this time, or the body at that time. We look back with regret because we didn't appreciate the body we had when we had it. <laughs> but we have the body we have today. God has chosen today's body to manifest his glory and to say you are believers in Jesus Christ. You are vessels of the glory of God. That's big stuff, isn't it? That's radical stuff. And it also reminds me that if I'm going through life, one of the questions I should be asking myself is, how am I honoring my body or dishonoring my body? And there are ways that we do that to one another and to ourselves. At Stanwich, we're concerned about issues like pornography or human trafficking because we know in those we are dishonoring others' bodies, but in the process, also dishonoring our own. This quote from Corinthians comes at the end of a section that deals with sexual immorality. And we know that God says, warning, your body is so important. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Guard it well. But not only does it have implications for us in our bodies, and maybe you want to go home and look in the mirror and say, okay, thank you, God, for this body. This is the body you've given me. But also it has implications for the other bodies around us. And I'm going to invite you to do a little interaction with me here. And that is I want you to turn to the person to your left, and then I want you to turn to the person to your right. And do you imagine right now you are beholding a vessel of the glory of God? The people around you, that's who's here in your midst. You're beholding a vessel of the glory of God. This is really important. When we look at our spouses or our children, these people in our lives matter because they are glory bearers. I invite you this week, as you go through your week, whether you come across someone who's homeless or a coworker or somebody you're in school with, or maybe it's the cashier in the grocery line, to think about who this person is. Perhaps they too are the bearer of the glory of God. At the very least, we know they're image bearers because they were made in God's image. We're told in Genesis, all people were made in God's image and therefore are people worthy of our honor and our respect. So glory is not only in us individually and in others, but it's in us corporately. Because what are we known as we gather together? We are the church, the body of Christ. 
So here together collectively, we reflect something of that kavod as well, that glory as we gather. And I know in my experience at Stanwich over the years, I have felt God's presence and God's glory in worship, in things we've sung, um, in words spoken, in the silence, in sermons, and in communion as we come to the Lord's table, even as we lay hands on one another in our final blessing. I trust some of you have had that experience as well, that you've known God's presence to be real, to be palpable, and to be present with us here. It's like those Emmaus walkers with Jesus. Maybe your hearts too have burned within you as you've been in this setting. Well, God's glory is seen not only in a tabernacle, but in us, and that includes the children among us. I recently experienced the glory of God through the gift of a child. I received a special letter in my third week here at Stanwich, and it came from a three-year-old, Mason Van, daughter of Carter and Robert Van. Um, she is the youngest letter writer of any letters I have received. You see it right here, and if you can't read it too well in the back, it says, Dear Heather, welcome as our new pastor, Love Mason Van. And according to her mom, this was her idea. By the way, I did call Mason and we talked about it. She said I could share this with you today. <laughs> um, but her mom said this was her idea and I couldn't believe that she left worship and decided to draw me a, a beautiful picture, which you'll see in a minute, and to write a note to me. I was so blown away. And so I went to coffee hour last Sunday and I bent down to talk to Mason. We had a little chat and I was telling her how much I loved the picture and her words to me. And um, she said in a very bold, bright voice, so guess what I want to be when I grow up? And I said, what? And she said, a pastor. <laughs> I was blown away by that incredible admission and uh, incredibly honored that she said that. Um, I think it's probably because of Nathan, but I was still very touched that she went there. <laughs> so let me show you the picture on the other side. According to her mother, this beautiful piece of art is a rainbow tent, in case there was any confusion about that. And I, I love this image, and I also love how God knew that I would be preaching at my installation service on the tent of meeting, which is now in the center of the tabernacle. And also that God gave this vision to Mason to give to me, to give to you. And as I prayed over Mason's image, I sensed God's hand of blessing on Sandwich Church, his rainbow promises of love, faithfulness, and care for his people. We are meant to shine in vibrant colors as vessels of his glory. May we, along with Mason, know God's glory within us as we live out our call to serve the body of Christ. Maybe we be open as well to receive that dynamite power that Annie Dillard talked about. It is here for us and in us to do God's kingdom work for his glory. Amen.